The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph and Mitsubishi Motors. I think it's only right that we should start this podcast by sending our deepest condolences to those people who lost their lives due to Typhoon Gibis and our thoughts and prayers are with their relative family and friends. It was a devastating uh, week in many ways, pitch cancellations, inspections, but we now know the quarter-finalists for the 2019 Rugby World Cup. Japan versus Scotland was billed as the biggest game in the tournament so far and it didn't disappoint. The hosts proved that they are among the best teams in the world with another breathtaking display of running rugby and have set themselves up a quarter-final against their old rivals, South Africa, who they famously beat in the miracle of Brighton in 2015. As for Scotland, they're heading home early from this year's tournament and questions are starting to be asked of the head coach, Gregor Townsend. We'll be speaking to the former Scotland and Lions fly-half, Craig Chalmers, about what the future holds for Townsend following their exit from this tournament. Ireland have joined Japan, making it out of Pool A, and their reward, so to speak, is a quarter-final against New Zealand. The former second row, Mike McCarthy, will discuss whether Joe Schmidt can get a third win over New Zealand before stepping down at the end of the tournament. And Wales will take on France in their quarter-final after an unconvincing win over Uruguay. Friend of the show and the former Ospreys coach, Sean Holly, is in Japan and he will tell us how the mood is in the Welsh camp. Finally, England will take on Australia. After having the weekend off, will this help or hinder Eddie Jones' side? We'll be discussing that and all our other topics with the England World Cup winner and my studio co-host today, Maggie Alfonso. Hello, Maggie. Hello. Well, unexpectedly crazy week for World Rugby. And can I just make it plain from the outset? The criticisms that I have and still maintain of World Rugby do not seek to minimise the severity of the situation and the atypical nature of the typhoon and its effects. I do still believe, however, things could have been dealt with in a, in a better way and maybe there are lessons to be learnt for that. I mean, luckily, we weren't deprived of the Japan versus Scotland game on Sunday. What did you make of the situation overall? Uh, I guess to first start off with, I want to you know send my sympathies and my thoughts to everyone who's been affected by the typhoon. I think uh, the realization is that there's more to to life than is just one rugby match, you know, or two rugby matches. So I think the call to cancel the games was was spot on by World Rugby and the Japan organizing committee. Um, I do think as well there would have been. Um, contingency plans put in place prior to this tournament you know we you know Brian going into any tournament uh, the organization the governing body would have done a lot of talks about what may happen if a typhoon hits us and what do we need to do um I think it's important to also highlight the fact that this was the biggest typhoon they've ever had hit the country uh, what in 61 years uh, and the scale of it was huge so I guess a lot of people are saying, could they have moved the venue? I mean, I also said it as well. I was like, wasn't there a contingency plan to possibly move the venue should this typhoon hit? Because um, obviously we saw the Island Samoa game get played. I, and the Wales-Uruguay game. Wales-Uruguay, yeah. So, I mean, there's this, definitely that discussion that it could have been moved or played behind closed doors. You know, that I mean, I understand there's logistics behind moving a load of fans and moving teams and players as well. Um, at the same time, you know, uh, if we look at those games, it didn't necessarily affect the outcome in terms of who went through. Um, the sad thing is, is that teams like Italy didn't, you know, their players couldn't end on the way that they wanted to. So Sergio Prese, I mean, how incredibly sad is that that he's potentially ended his international career not finishing on a on a game like that. Um, same with the Namibians and the Canadians as well. So I think the way it's been handled, first, I think the, the games had to be cancelled. I do wish that they had been moved to a different venue, but at the same time, do you know what? Life is is, is key. and It is, but i just um, make a couple of points on what you made. Once World Rugby said the games are cancelled, then to me, when everyone else was saying, well, certain parts of the country aren't affected and 
there was a possibility for at least three or four days of people travelling freely, which they did, then he denied the chance for people to even try. And it gave the impression, albeit that it, it might well have just been an impression, that every stone, so to speak, was not being um, turned to try and get these games on. If they'd said, right, we're postponing them, it may well have turned out that the result would have been in the end the same, that they were cancelled. But once you say they're cancelled before then, then you've painted yourself into a corner and nothing else uh, seems to be uh, have been done. And also, if you don't release the details of the contingency plans and say, look, yeah, we did um, look at the possibility of moving games, playing them back to back, you know, uh, at, at venues which we know were going to be unaffected up to three or four days out, then that also gives the impression that you haven't done everything you could, which if it was the case that they did consider those, was unfortunate because people then jump to the conclusion and say, well, if you won't tell us what these contingency plans were, how do we know that you tried everything you could to do this? Now, they may, they may well have, have done that. It's just that the impression given is not one which they would want, I think, in retrospect, um, to have given and not one which maybe they didn't deserve that. Maybe they did do that. But the suspicion does remain when you start to get other people chipping in. And I was criticised. World Rugby officially denied this, but I did speak to uh, several people from the SRU and World Rugby board members who said something different, who said that New Zealand, which they are quite right within their purview to take this stance. And I, had I been in their position, I would probably have done the same and said, look, we're not playing with a short turnaround. I'm sorry, it's not our fault, which is a fair point. But when you give a vacuum in terms of the information given and you don't give as full and frank disclosure as is possible, then you allow these things to go. So I'm putting it no higher than that. I think there were mistakes made. Having said that, it, to me, it was absolutely vital, and I'm thank goodness this, irrespective of the the lives claimed, and I'm not seeking to minimise those. We have to give real credit to the Japanese people for the resilience they showed in getting these games on, to the Japanese rugby union who will have been involved in this, and indeed to World Rugby for their part, such as it was in doing that. And I genuinely believe that this was a tournament saver in terms of credibility because had it not gone ahead, had it been possible to play, which obviously it was, if you'd had that game cancelled in advance and then it had turned out on the day, well, the conditions were suitable, people, and not just Scottish people, people would have gone crazy because a lot of people were still saying beforehand, if this doesn't take place and this tournament, um, not that it's turned out to be a joke, but the... Uh, credibility would have, to me, been seriously undermined for reasons which were possibly uh, avoidable. Uh, having said that, it went ahead. It was a tremendous game. And Japan showed yet again that they, bar New Zealand probably, have been the best team in this tournament. So, Brian, I'm going to chip in there and say, first, you're dead right. I think there needs to be transparency from World Rugby. I think if that had been clear from the start to, to the spectators, I imagine there must have been with the with the unions, but with the spectators and fans, I think that would have probably uh, stopped a lot of negativity against World Rugby and the, and the Japan organising committee. Um, and then to answer your other point around um, the game had to go ahead, I think the game had to go ahead definitely for the reputation of the tournament, but also for, you know, effectively Rugby World Cup is a tester event for the Olympics in 2020. Mm -hmm. So if that if that hadn't gone ahead, people, the world would have been looking at uh, Japan and how they managed to deal with hosting uh, and would have criticised them for that. So the fact that the game went ahead and it was a fantastic game highlights the fact that Japan as a country and Tokyo as a city are able to um, deal with any challenges and can still get get, I guess, entertainment still going ahead. So I think that game had more than just about the Rugby World Cup. It actually really has made Japan look more credible for the Olympics in 2020. Well, I've, I've visited Japan several times. I think it's a tremendous country. I love the people. You've got to remember that uh, in past uh, natural disasters, they've coped with them admirably well. I had no doubt that they would do whatever they could. And I was told... Uh, 
uh, frankly, by, by, by the, the three people I spoke to, that the Japanese did not want to go through in this manner. It was very important for them, they felt, uh, for their credibility as a team, as a country, that they were allowed to play and go through on merit. And when they finish top of the group, and deservedly so, because the, the great thing from their point of view, and looking as a neutral from outside, is that you cannot say in either of the games where they beat the Tier 1 countries in their group that there was elements of luck in that they deserved to go through without any doubt. And Jamie Joseph has said it as well, you know, give my team respect. And uh, I'm so glad that game was played. And I'm so glad that, you know, Japan performed and performed well uh, and Scotland as well you know look Scotland had an incredibly good second half they came back for what, from 28-7 down um, so it was a good game overall but I'm just so pleased that Japan won it the way they, they did mm-hmm. um, and, and now I think uh, everyone you know we're constantly questioning world rugby around how we how they do their tier one and tier two you know Japan have highlighted the fact that they are potentially now a, a tier one nation and can compete. Well, we will see where that goes because I've been going on as long as I can remember about teams like Japan having the automatic right. However you structure it, whether it's playoffs between the country that comes last in rugby championship or the Six Nations, whether it's every two years you have promotion and relegation, whether it's every three years, I don't care how you actually get it to come about. There has to be an automatic right for teams who play this well to get into the two showcase events in world rugby in international terms. It has to be. Oh, I agree. I mean, what teams like Fiji, they currently play in the what the Pacific Nations Cup. Um, and I think they've dominated it over the last few years. And Japan, I think, and Canada and USA joined them in the tournament this year. And Japan went and won it. So you're dead right. I, I do believe that teams uh, who perform really well, like Fiji, uh, you do think to yourself, if Fiji had had more regular top competition, um, they may have done even better in this World Cup and that they had some more time together going into the tournament. But we do want to see teams like that really push on now and, and, and there's going to be a lot of discussion around World Rugby about what they do to support them. Well, naturally, the Scottish fans, uh, uh, the players, uh, indeed the coach, Gregor Townsend, were very disappointed in the manner of the exit. Not that they can complain about the fairness and I don't think to their credit that they have been doing. Why don't we speak to a regular contributor to this podcast, the former Scotland and British Lions fly half, Craig Chalmers, who's here. Hello, Craig. How you doing, mate? You all right? Very disappointing for you, I understand. But, you know, when, when in two vital games you find yourself almost 20 points down, you're almost bound to come unstuck. Now, I wonder where you think it went particularly wrong and why in particular... They had such poor starts in the two biggest games in their pool. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the first game, I think against Ireland, went into that. I think our tactics were totally wrong in that game. Uh, we got we were trying to play too much rugby in the wrong areas in terrible conditions. Um, I thought it was a poor game plan and, and badly executed as well. And I thought Ireland played a simple game plan and a direct, simple, aggressive game plan, kicked well. Um, we didn't in that first game and we, we just looked knackered in that first game we looked like we lacked energy in that first game um, just totally unlike unlike Scottish performance next two games against Samoa and uh, Russia were, were good clean sheets and then I thought we'd do it against uh, Japan but you know I thought first first five minutes brilliant and then after that Japan we never saw, never saw the ball for 35 minutes yep I thought Japan were absolutely outstanding in that 35 minutes. It's the best 35 minutes of rugby I've seen for a long time. What do you, I mean, easy in retrospect, easy to sit on the touchline. What, if anything, do you think they could have done to alter that in, as you say, the, the, the first half of the 35 minutes of it, you know, at least, where they were, were just not able to get into the game? Is there anything they could have done, in your opinion? We lost the first kickoff, the, you know, a little smart kickoff. We lost that one, but we defended really well. Then we got the ball and we scored a try. We were seven points up. It was, you know, good plan to be fair. And then after that, we made one or two silly errors, uh, silly mistakes, knocking balls on, silly little kicks. 
Um, and we never saw the ball again. And, and, and Japan, you just got to take your hearts off to Japan and say, listen, you know, I think I don't think many teams in the world could have coped with what Japan threw at Scotland in that 35 minutes. The accuracy of the passing, the, the precision of everything that they did at the breakdown, the speed of the ball from the breakdown, uh, little Skamath, I can't remember his name, but he was getting the ball away so quick. They were playing on the gain line. They were asking questions all over all over the park and they do it with such passion and such uh, you know such you know vigour um, it was hard to we were very narrow in defence and we got caught out and you know I mean if if, if all blacks have scored those tries that, that, that Japan scored yesterday everyone would be saying how brilliant and they were absolutely outstanding and so you know I, listen I, I thought Scotland played Pretty well, second half at times, and, and came back into it. But I think the, I think the fact that they had to tackle so much in that first half, just the last fifteen minutes, you know, they were they were they were done, and uh, you know, the best team won, and we can have, we can have no complaints. We've got to we've got to go home, lick our wounds. One or two players will retire, I think, a step back step back from the international game, and you know, there's some good young players coming through, and I think Gregor will still be there. Um, for the next, for the foreseeable future, anyway. Hey, Craig, it's Maggie here. Hi, Maggie. Just to go off that last bit you just said there around Gregor Townsend, you know, um, obviously questions are going to be asked about him. He's been in charge of Scotland over, what, 22 games, won 11 games, lost 10, I think drawn one. So I guess, do you think there should be time for a change? No, no, not at all. I don't think it should be time for a change at all. I think, uh, I think there's going to be time for a Maybe we look at how they're playing the game. I know they want to play the fastest game in the world and the offloading game, and but I think somebody else has just taken over over that mantle. Um, I think Japan are playing that game. Um, I think uh, we've got to be able to play more than one way, and we've got to just maybe adjust certain things in, in certain areas. Um, you know, consistency is a massive issue for us. We play very well at home. Um, we can't win away from home. Um, we play a little bit too loosely at times. We've got to be able to adapt to situations, conditions, um, and play accordingly. You know, why, where, when on the park are you doing certain things? And I think some of t- one or two of our players aren't quite getting that um, at the moment, and that's uh, part of our downfall. But I- I've got every faith in Greg. I know Greg very well. I mean, he's, he played with him and, and against him over the years. But you know, I, th- I think he. He, you know, he's the right guy for the job. Him and his coaching staff, and uh, I think the Six Nations is a Six, Six Nations next year is going to be a huge, huge uh, tournament for him. If, if if it doesn't happen, then then there will be serious questions asked. But um, yeah, I think we'll stick with what we've got. One or two players step down from the international game after this World Cup, and then we go with the youngsters and look forward to you know some good results in the Six Nations. Well, Craig, that that hits a point which I wanted to raise with you. Going into the tournament, there were uh, many players who came back from injury, some very established players. Uh, if you'd predicted the likely team to play the final pool game, you wouldn't necessarily have come up with an all-new back row or McNally, who was made captain, you'd be on the bench and so on. So I think Hello. quite a few people, myself included, were wondering whether the, uh, the, the forward planning was a bit left to chance when you see players who seemingly just came into contention in the middle of the World Cup rather than a more settled squad or playing um, starting uh, you know, 23 and style. It, it, it gives the impression, in retrospect, which is always easy, that a bit of this was made up on the hoof. Maybe a little bit. I think maybe we maybe hoped that... Um... Uh, John Barkley was I think he was up to speed. He, he you know, he hadn't played enough matches, didn't have enough uh, rugby under his belt. Um, you know, I think uh you've got um Magnus Bradbury came in, he wasn't even selected to start off with. Jamie Ritchie had a little injury. Um Hamish Watson, losing Hamish Watson Hamish Watson was a big blow for Scotland as well. Um you've got to remember remember that. But um I think midfield wasn't quite right. I think it's a it's an area of our of our team, we've got a lot of centres, but um, you know they've all got little flaws in their game that we don't have. You know, two out-and-out quality centres as a lot of our teams have. So I think that's an issue for us. 
the back three wasn't Seymour wasn't performing particularly well an experienced player Darcy Graham came in and looked looked great in a couple of games um, and but looked a little bit naive at times um, yesterday and two of his players Hogan Hogan the uh, fullback and, and Finn Russell didn't maybe perform to the you know the heights that the, that we expected them to do so so you know a lot of big game, big big game experienced players didn't turn up, and uh, yeah, I think it's you know it's, it's time for these young guys to get a get a get a chance. I think Laidlaw, obviously, he's been a great servant to Scotland, but I think it's time for you know young George Horn and and Ali Price to get a shot of a regularly regular start at, at scrum half and and show what they can do. But you know, lots of lots of questions to be answered. I mean, listen, England England were in this position. Four years ago, and 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 look where they've you know got to now. So, um, you know, teams adapt, they adjust, and they and they they talk, they get they get it sorted out. And I'm sure Scotland will be exactly the same. You really just talked about Stuart Hogg there. I mean, look, I, th- I think I've read something about him um, talking about post the game and saying it's going to eat him, you know, eat away at his mind for the next whatever four years. And you know, you talk about experienced players stepping up. Do you think? Sh- do you think Stuart Hogg in particular, you know, he's one player you always expect to perform um, for Scotland and, and during the World Cup in particular, do you think players like him in particular could have done a bit more to take more ownership, um, I guess? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I know what you're saying, Maggie. I think he's, um, you know, we did get a lot some good front football at times, but I mean, you know, we've got a lot of big loopy passes going out to his direction. He's not getting much space and time. I think I think I think Stuart moving away to Exeter is going to be a good move for him. I think the change of uh, you know change of venue, change of you know culture, you know will be good for him. Um, and I think uh, he'll be good for Exeter. I think he I think he'll, his game will his game will improve as well. You know, so I think uh, you know he's been disappointing. I think he'll be disappointed, but you can't let it eat away at you. That's the one thing you can't do. Mm. You know, you've got to try and park it somewhere and get on with it and and look where the look where the how can you get better? How can the team get better? And then you know move on from there. But you you can't you can't let it eat away at you. You know, like uh, Gavin's kicking. Scott, (laughs) I'm glad you said that. Uh, Just a a final uh, point to put to you, Scott. It's all very well saying you want to play the fastest game in the world. I understand that and I understand why it might be to Scotland's strengths. However, parts of the second half when Scotland looked as though they might, you know, overturn this deficit, occasionally, you know, Russell kicked well. And to me, the international game... The kicking and chasing part of that is never going to be uh, minimal. That it's you know one of the stats that Eddie Jones has brought up that he is responsible for the no amount of kicking that they do on the front foot alone is that teams who kick most actually win most. So to me, they've also Gregor's also got to sort out where and when Scotland's kicking game fits into this overall plan. You know that he has to play in a certain style. What do you think of that? No, I totally, I totally agree with you. I mean, as a, as a, as a fly half and, you know, my scrum half that I've played with in the, in the years gone by, you know, it's much easier kicking off of front foot ball. That's the kind of ball you want to kick off. You want to kick in the front foot and, and get a good chase. And, and it is why, why you're kicking, when you're kicking and where to. And, you know, the execution is, is important. We don't, we have, we have too many bad kicks. We have too many poor kicks and too many kicks at the wrong time. We tend, we tend to overdo the diagonal kick. Sometimes it comes off, and, and you know, and, and Finn's great at it. And uh, but sometimes it doesn't come off, and um, it's just getting it uh, consistently, uh, you know, working and, and getting it, and doing it at the right times. Uh, so you know, it, they're all different parts. The, the game, our game, will be ripped apart by by the coaches after the World Cup. The debrief, I'm sure. And uh, I just think they hopefully look at they look at it. You know, they will look at detail, detail by detail, but um, you know I, we've got to be a bit more pragmatic at times in the way we're playing. We can't just be chucking everything, big mispasses. You know, mispasses are my bugbear as a coach and as a player. You know, they, they don't they don't achieve anything as far as I'm concerned. And if you watch the Japanese, the slickness of the passes, I don't I don't think they pass the ball any further than five five meters in the weekend. They're all crisp, nice, sharp passing. Um, Inside, outside, shoulders—all you know—they ask questions of us all over the 
all over that back line or defensive line uh, throughout that whole game. And, you know, they were fantastic. And, you know, although we didn't play badly, I, didn't, I thought they'd play okay, but they just were outstanding. And I think they could give they could give a, a team a shock on Saturday, I think. Well, we will see. Craig, it's sad to speak to you in these circumstances, but always good in other ones. Cheers, mate. Thank you. No worries, guys. See you later. Maggie, Craig mentioned the way that Japan played. What was particularly interesting to me was the way in which they varied the attack between short side and open side. Far more variety in that than I've seen in a long time with a lot of teams. A lot of teams, the punch jump for going the same way, trying to stretch the field, then come back and see where the mismatches are. Because they constantly came, it meant, you know, as a blind side, ostensible defender, normally when the ball goes open, you think, oh, not a cover a rest, but actually not coming my way so I can get back in position with, you know, a bit of time. Because they constantly switched back, nobody on either side of the rook, pillars, guards, bodyguards, or even wider players, got a chance to rest at all. I thought the way Japan played was, like you just highlighted there, they varied the attack. They kept almost Scotland honest in terms of the way they defended. Because I think the first... 10-15 10-15 minutes Scotland were coming out of the line they are coming off coming off the line and they're pushing really really hard mainly on the open side and you're right as a result of that there were opportunities on the blind side I think Japan's first try came because Scotland pushed so hard that they kept the almost the outside channel the 5 metre channel really um, oh they didn't defend it very well so as a result of that there was an opportunity just, just to do a couple of missed passes and then Japan got, got over You've got to give great credit to the uh, Japanese halfbacks for, for, for actually marshalling this and playing consistently bringing the outside runners at the varied angles at the right times you can't to me they deserve an immense uh, there's no there's no praise that's, that's high enough for the, in this particular game as to how they actually run it isn't it funny how uh, you know growing up I think I was always taught to play like the Kiwis you know play like the New Zealanders you know keep do the basics really well and now I feel like we're going to start talking about play like the Japanese and, and, and vary your attack and actually manipulate the defence to create those opportunities and um, everything that Japan did yesterday was spot on especially I mean I thought their defence was brilliant I mean they're and you come back to the point that I've been making, it just shows you do not have to have, for want of a better phrase, and I know this is a bit of a stereotype, Big Island boshing, you know, to be effective. Still, first man, round the legs, brought down behind the gain line, everyone else in on top, pair of hands in, even though the vast majority of times you don't win it, it slows the game down, it commits attackers who have to get you out of there, and, uh, well, you, you know, it was an important win in, in so many ways, and that there progress in this tournament is a beacon for players like, like me, not necessarily you in the women's game, you know, who are disadvantaged size-wise. It does show that with correct application, mastery of the basic skills and above all decision-making that you can still play really effectively even against the best sides. Oh, definitely. And hats off to first Eddie Jones because obviously he had them first and then, you know, Jamie Joseph has done a brilliant job with Japan. But the way they tackle, I, I have to say, when, I, when I've worked with kids, I always say to them, like, now make sure you watch what the Japanese do. They go really low. They make it a, an impact when they make their first initial hit. Um, they're very disciplined as well when they're in defence. You know, I mean, they did give away some penalties, yeah, but um, I still think they're very structured. And I think they made 11 turnovers against yeah. um Scotland in their own half. I mean, that is a, a huge effort to do that on the on their trial line in particular. So, I think Japan are going to go. You know, hopefully, will go far. Even if they lose to South Africa, I think they've definitely, you know, lit up the tournament and lit up the way Rugby World Cup should be should be hosted. Well, just before we move on to Ireland, let me make a special mention to the Canadian rugby team who took to the streets to help with the chaos caused by the typhoon once their pool game with Namibia was cancelled. What a tremendous! gesture. Ireland, they got what they needed against Samoa. It was a bonus point win. Um, Didn't finish top of the table and therefore are not facing South Africa. They're facing New Zealand. What does our next guest, the uh, former Ireland and Leinster second row, Mike McCarthy, make about that? Hello, Mike. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Okay, mate. It was always going to be, look, it's going to be one or the other, never going to be easy. Having said that, um, in recent history, Ireland haven't done too badly against the Blocks. So how do you think they will be feeling going into the quarterfinal? 
Yeah, I think they're picking up a bit of confidence. Um, obviously, the setback of losing to Japan, but uh, the performance the other day against Samoa, where they played for, um, I think, 50 minutes with 14 men, um, you know, that was to score so many points, so many tries was was uh, was really good. And I think uh, Bundy Aki, obviously losing him, he's he's massive guy to have for the quarterfinals. So my understanding is that hearing's taking place now. They've flown a specialist lawyer in from Ireland. Uh, I was even reading there that they've brought in some custard creams and bourbon biscuits to try and sway the panel. Um, but yeah, this guy, that guy is so important to the team in terms of the physicality and experience he brings. It was great to see Robbie Henshaw back against Samoa. And, you know, Robbie is, there's not many players Joe would take to the World Cup where he's kind of, you know, have as the passenger in, in the sense they're not able to play for three or four games, but that just shows the importance of of Robbie Henshaw, and he's been um, so important in, in 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 the games where they have beaten the All Blacks. And uh, over the years, you know, they've beaten the All Blacks for the first time in their history. 2013, I played in that game and came very close. We uh, Ireland were winning on 80 minutes, and then the All Blacks showed their class, keeping the ball for four and a half minutes to score in the corner. But then the learnings were taken forward from that. They beat uh, New Zealand in Chicago in 2016 and then also beat them in 2018. So in that sense, the monkey's off their backs. Uh, they'll definitely be going into the game with with uh, you know some confidence from that. But they'll understand they need to be at their 100% best, uh, You know the, the, the level they're at in 2018. They'll have to have a bit of luck on the day. Um, but I think one area Ireland can really expose New Zealand is, and, and in those two games, 2016, 2018, I, I feel one area Ireland really did get on top was the set piece, the scrum and the driving line out. And um, I think if they can get on, on top of them in those areas, so that seed of doubt in the first few minutes, I think in 2016, there was a mall try in the first 10 minutes. Um, and they bring that same physicality they've brought in the past uh, which, which, as we saw in the warm-up games, was Ireland haven't been at their best. But uh, you know, Joe's spoken about periodisation in 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 the pre-season and trying to peak for the quarter-final. And um, you know, Joe, we all know the, the attention to detail Joe puts into his game plans and planning. And uh, hopefully, from an Irish perspective, we're we're going to see them peaking just at the right time. But no doubt, it's going to be a, a huge game. Mike, Johnny Sexton has commented, he said he can't understand some of the negativity surrounding Ireland's World Cup campaign. Well, I mean, I can tell him the the, the reason is, uh, you know, the the first game and, and so on. And the suspicion that Ireland, uh, irrespective of the way they've played in the uh, more recent games, haven't quite been their imperious best. Do you think, you talked about periodisation, are you quite happy that the negatives around the warm-up games and the, you know, the loss to Japan are now banished, and that it is simply a question of focus forward? Oh, I definitely think so. I mean, you know, as 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 much as it would have hurt um, taking a hammering at Twickenham to England, um, I think England had played two tough warm-up games against Wales before that. They were a bit uh, a bit more battle-hardened. Um, that was Ireland's second game, but it was their first game where they'd, you know, picked their first team. So, you know, the wheels completely fell off that day, but def- Ireland definitely haven't been at their, at their best. You know, we, we talk about that form from 2018. They've been off that. And I think it's a case of other teams have kind of worked Ireland out. How do you stop Ireland's game plan? You um, you have to really uh, muddy muddy the puddle in terms of slowing their breakdown. Where when Ireland are good, they play off r- extremely quick uh, ball at the breakdown, fast ball. They keep the ball for long periods of time. Uh, they go into very high number of phases, and you know that ties out the opposition. They either get they either tie and give a penalty away, or there's a chink in the defence and creates an opportunity. So uh, for Ireland, um, they haven't been getting as quick ruck ball as they have had in 2018 um, and also they haven't been getting to as, as many high high number phases so I think we saw we're seeing an improvement as the World Cup goes on um, that Samoa game for one um, obviously Samoa and New Zealand com- completely different class of opposition but uh, you know I fully believe um, 
there's going to be a good performance from Ireland in the quarterfinal. And as you said, there, there is a lot of pressure in Ireland on the team. Uh, you know, when, when Joe came in, he, Ireland were eighth. He got them to number one. Uh, I, I mentioned before they, they've, the success they've had, beating the All Blacks twice, a series win in Australia, being South Africa away from home uh, for the first time, uh, the Triple Crown. Um, you know, it's just put a massive weight uh, and expectation on the team. And, you know, they were off in last year's Six Nations. They were, they, they have been off um, during the warm-up games, but I definitely am expecting a big performance now for the quarterfinal. Hi, Mike. Maggie here. Hi, Maggie. You just touched on about, you know, the, some of the strengths that Ireland have done over the World Cup, you know, the set pieces, um, you know, the way they've carried the ball. I guess New Zealand, you've really highlighted they're a different beast, you know. Um, I guess the question is, how will Ireland cope against New Zealand's defence? Because they have been, again, physically aggressive in the way they play, but also they've varied their attack as well. What do you think, you know, Ireland need to do to to break down the, the defence and also break down the, the, the way that they play? Because obviously, you know, Moanga, he's got very good regards to his kicking game. Obviously, Barrett playing at 15 um, likes to mix it up. What do you think Ireland need to do to break that down? Well, I, I think, you know, getting a good start is, is, is part of it. I mentioned that Chicago game where they scored a all try. I think they need to be, in terms of set piece, they need to get that foundation. They need to be completely on top at scrum, uh, more attack, more defence, um, and, you know, sow that seed of doubt. And they need to get back to what they're good at, which is, you know, we we mentioned Six Nations last year against England and Wales. Ireland were physically dominated, and we're not used to seeing a 2018 Irish team physically dominated. And they need to be winning the collisions, winning the momentum when they're carrying, winning those inches in defence and attack. Uh, and the set piece is so important. Um, and then also, you know, I mentioned that guy Robbie Henshaw. He'll bring a huge amount of physicality and and Bundy Bundy key as well. So I think if Ireland start the game well, get on top, get on top on those. Uh, key key areas um and then we all know what New Zealand are like off turnover ball. Uh, I remember watching that first game of the World Cup, South Africa versus New Zealand, and it seemed to me South Africa were completely on top for I think the first twenty, thirty, maybe even the first forty. And you know, I don't think New Zealand were at their best. And then you know, they we just know they 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 come through at some point and can turn it on when they need to. And uh, you know, you just can't clock off mentally. Uh, for 85 minutes against New Zealand because you know um, how dangerous they are off uh, that kind of that kind of loose ball. So defence uh, clearly has to be uh, top notch. You know, working on the inside, keep no discon- no disconnect in defence. Um, you know, they just repeatedly have to keep going to the well and um, fronting up physically. I think, but from a, from a New Zealand perspective, we mentioned Robbie Hitt, Robbie Henshaw for Ireland. It's uh, from for New Zealand. It's it's good for them to see uh, Brody Retallick back. Um, I know they would have liked to have had some more game time from in that last game, which was which was cancelled. But uh, I think he's massive uh, for that New Zealand team in terms of his leadership qualities and the the engine and the work rate he gets through. Uh, that uh, we keep mentioning it, but that 2016 game, Brody Retallick wasn't playing, um, and I think their their lineout kind of mal- malfunctioned without Brody Retallick. So uh, it's massive for them to have have him back as well. Well, Mike, the measure is this. Nine minutes possession in the first half against South Africa went in 17-3 up. So that's, you know, how specific and how accurate you have to be against them. But the great thing is that um, not without uh, hope at all. Thanks very much for joining us. We will shortly see. Thank you, mate. Thanks very much. Cheers. Bye-bye. You know, Maggie... This was predicted to be, and it's turned out to be, bar Japan, who I don't think anybody expected to be as successful as they've been. But you've got a set of quarterfinals, all of which are at least uh, open. Uh, some, uh, you know, are more open than others. You, you can't deny that. But I can't remember another World Cup where you've had four fixtures that have been like this. There's always been at least one or two where you thought, actually, there's no real chance of an upset occurring. That's not the case this time. No, it's absolutely brilliant. It's great, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know about you, Brian, but I have to say, normally when you look at the pool stages in any tournament, you know, it starts off quite slow and then the, the last best, the last games are at the best of the pool, at the end of the pool. And I think it's been, it's been brilliant. You can't, you can't take your eyes off the tournament um, because every game has been exciting and, and the fact that we've got to the quarterfinals, we said that it was going to be an open World Cup because there's lots of good teams who are performing really well. 
But the quarterfinals does highlight the fact that, you know, who would have thought, especially at the moment, that we would have seen Japan in that quarterfinals, you know? Um, certainly as group winners. I, I, mean, no, I mean, none of us really, probably deep down, thought Japan would have fully got through because we thought I thought, I thought they might qualify I didn't I didn't expect them to be group winners I thought they would have definitely done well I actually thought Fiji was going to do well I had my had my bets on them doing pretty good but uh, I think what's really pleasing is that the quarterfinals is definitely open um, when you look at the England-Australia game that, that's going to be a well, tell you what, why do we move on to that because you know one of the at least alleged benefits of uh, games being cancelled has been said to be the fact that teams like uh, England, like uh, New Zealand, like uh, France have had an extra week to prepare. They uh, will be able to sort out any injury problems that they've got. But in England's case, what should have been a really difficult test against Argentina turned out to be not the case, not least, no, it's not their fault, but, you know, an Argentinian getting himself sent off in 18 minutes, you know, effectively ended that as a competition. England put them away very well. Uh, I believe it would have been better for them. The, the thing is this. Actually, I don't think Eddie Jones or uh, the French coach, Galtier um, would have would have played their first teams in this game anyway, actually. Uh, and you mean speaking about the England have got, look, they've got the maximum points. They've been averaging six tries a game. And yet, there's still a feeling amongst fans for justifiable reasons that they've been not overwhelming. Ben Young suggesting the build-up England have got a few tricks up their sleeve. Um, what do you think he means by that? Moves, combinations, or what, or both? Uh, I, I guess I think it's probably a bit of both. You know, um, I, I know based on a World Cup, our, our experience has always been the fact that he, he has to kind of, in a way, leave something... To, to spare to the very end just in case you know because as we all know in any tournament environment everyone is watching you and everyone's analysing you to the very nth uh, degree of detail so get away with things once it, it's yeah. true and that's yeah. why I'm actually when you think about Japan and obviously they're going to come up against South Africa now we've all been watching how Japan play and, and South Africa have done so much detail on them and if anything what have Japan got next to to, to play against Africa, which is going to make them a little bit different and, and potentially, um, you know, be unpredictable against uh, South Africa. But for for England, I think they probably have got bits to spare. I mean, look, we haven't, we still haven't seen the best of England. We all know that. I mean, they played against Argentina, like you said, against fourteen players, didn't get tested. Um, I think everyone thinks they've got, they've had their feet up and they've just been resting, waiting to, to wait into the quarterfinals. Oh, and, and Brian, you you fully know what it's like in that environment. I know that they would have been pushed incredibly hard. They would have probably had to try and replicate a, ma- a test match um, uh, level of training just to make sure that they, they're keeping the intensities up because you do not want, as a coach, to to, to let that that level of momentum dip um, during that period. So. And also for England, it's been perfect, if anything. You know, Billy Villapolo gets to look after that, that, that ankle. Um, same with Joe Marler. I know he, he limped, up, limped off as well. So for England, it's probably timed out quite well. And uh, as Mike highlighted on the, on the call just a second ago, it, it's about peaking at the right time. So for England, they, they, they're going to use the opportunity to hopefully make sure they've got all 31 players fit for, for that game. Well, I'm sure they will. I mean, Australia have lost their last six games against England. I... I'm running a book on which of Eddie Jones or Michael Checker spontaneously combusts first on camera, because they're both quite uh, they're both quite volatile characters. Uh, going into this game, do you, Jen, do you, in your experience, do you think that that sort of stat has any real import when it comes to a quarterfinal? Or, or I think it plays a seed of doubt in your in your back of your mind but I, I generally believe when you come into knockout stages all of history uh, in terms of past performances gets put behind you you know if we if we come back again to the Japan game versus Scotland there were, Japan did a lot of firsts you know Japan had never beaten Scotland before uh, and Japan had never made it to quarterfinals and they could have probably put that the doubt in their mind and put it to the forefront but actually they, they put it to the back and I think for Australia I don't think they've had, the, again, the best of uh, run-ups to this game. Um, and I generally believe what you would do as a player is just put it behind you. But for me, when I look at the Australian team, I, I think the issues that they've got at the moment is, you know, who's their number 10? Because they keep, they've, they've changed it up over the last few games. I think Foley's 
Foley played against Wales. Uh, Tamua played that last game a- against uh, Georgia. And then Leofano pl- has played two games. So what's the, the right halfback combination? And will he go with Nick Wa- Nick White to start? Or will he go with Will Genia? I don't think they have any consistency. Because just to me, I, I don't think it has a deleterious effect on Australia because they will just come out and say, this is the spur we need. But I do think it possibly has this effect. If England get into a tight game and a lot of them have played in the last six and they know they can, they've can, they won, then they may not be in the panicky mode that the scoreboard might suggest they might be. They will have faith in thinking, look, we know we can beat this team. We've beaten them six times in a row. As long as we carry on with faith in what we're doing, then things will come good. And that's a good position to be in. So, uh, you know, that's a possible, um, a possible consequence of that for England and not Australia. But it goes, I put it no, no higher... Uh, than that. Just finally, regarding selection, I thought that the Ford Farrell 10, 12, whatever, had been sorted before this game. However, the last several games, if not seven games, you know, Ford has started, uh, Farrell's been at 12. Now, that might have been because Henry Slade or um, Jonathan Joseph wasn't, weren't fit or trusted to be outside to Alanya with Farrell at 10. <sighs> I can't call what he's going to do on that. Nor can I. I mean, I have to say, I think Ford's Ford's played really well. He played well in the warm-up games and um, he's, he's had a good World Cup so far and he's he's also shown to be a good leader. I think uh, I think that's kind of the big thing for me that's really stepped up. And uh, and against Argentina, he went with Ford, he went with Farrell and he went with Tulangi at 13. And, and again, I know they didn't get tested very well, but I think... I would expect Eddie to probably stick with that. Um, Slade, we're not quite sure how his body's still coping in terms of his his knee. And Jonathan Joseph, I think, is a, a brilliant player. But I think for the for what they're going to come up against uh, against Australia, I actually think uh, a Tulangi and a Farrell combination centres works well. You know, if you think about the way uh, Karevi plays, you know, he likes to carry hard. He's probably one of the high, highest carriers in terms of the backs. So I reckon you, you, they need to strengthen that that. 10, 12 channel, 12, 13 channel, because um, Ford isn't necessarily your top tackler. So if I was in Australia, I'd be running down his channel all day long. So I, I do think that that, that, that centre combination of Farrell and Tulangi works. Time to speak about the Welsh. They've uh, got into the quarterfinals, 100% record. Not been entirely convincing in every facet of their game, but they're still on track. Let's speak to a regular contributor and a man who always speaks since the former Ospreys coaches in Japan, Sean Holly. Hello, Sean. Hi, Brian. How are you? Hi, Maggie. Not, we're not too bad over here. Um, Warren Gatlin said just 240 minutes lying between Wales and life-changing glory, which indeed it is. Um, if you had to pick out a few things which Wales need to do better to make that glory more certain, what, what would they be? Well, I think we've seen a typical Warren Gatland uh, Wales team from the last two seasons, but you know, not, as you say, overly exciting, not really, you know, setting the world alight, but being quite pragmatic and getting the job done. They're a tough bunch and they come through, you know, we've had some injuries which has sort of quelled some of the enthusiasm, but they've got through them. Now, I'd like to see us perhaps shore up our usually robust Sean Edwards defence a little bit. I think you know it's going to be tested in the knockout stages now, and uh, and and maybe she showed a little bit more rapier sharpness in attack. I'd like to see George North step up to the plate a little bit more. He's been quiet for me. Josh Adams has showed the way, but you know with Liam Williams uh, making lots and lots of yards and and it's having quite a lot of possession. Having George in the game, I think against France is going to be really important to score some tries. So. We're nearly there. We're quietly going about our business. We're, we're quite battle-hardened, but we need a little bit more now in the knockouts. Of all the quarterfinals you could have, bearing in mind, is it is it is it six out of seven or seven out of eight you've won against uh, France in the in the in the past uh, run of fixtures? I mean, it, it's certainly a big winning uh, streak against them. Could you get a better opponent? Well. I think anybody other than Japan with <laughs> people, <are> talk, <laughs> people are talking that way out here, bro. You know, I think yeah, it does on paper look like um, a comfortable, more comfortable game for us. We've obviously avoided the big boys. We never will 
know whether we would have played England with the, the game being called off. But I think we have a good record against France. But in the back of our minds, of course, will be the first half of the Six Nations out in Paris where Wales were heavily behind and had to come back. But I think that will stand us in good stead. But a lot of the talk out here from fans is whether or not our four games and quite a tough injury list is going to take its toll and France having a bit of time off is going to bring that freshness. You will know, mate, as well as me, that... Um, you know, to go into these games a little bit more battle-hardened, you know, with games and all the squad having played, you know, Warren will probably be a little bit more confident. And uh, now that all the players are able to train this week and the injuries are back, then uh, it should be, you know, a, a good game for Wales. But France are, are ever dangerous, as you will know. And uh, if they could pull a game out, uh, then it could be in the quarter-final of a World Cup. Well, all I can say is this, Sean. I spoke to Philippe Saint-Andre, you know, very experienced French player, captain and former coach. And this was before they were due to face England. But I don't think it can be particularly different with Wales. He was so pessimistic. He basically said, we just hope that France put a decent performance in. And that was the paucity of his ambition for this. And when I look at France, irrespective of the bits and pieces which they have done well, it seems to me they don't know what the hell they're doing on the field most of the time. You know, they do two or three things in succession, which you think are good. Then one of the brilliant players, Para, or, you know, will will pull something exceptional out. But as an overall 80-minute team, there seems to be no real fixed bearings for them. I, I totally agree with you. And you know, I fail to see any sort of common shape in what France are trying to achieve. You know, they, they have moments of brilliance. They've got players who can do so much damage at 10-0. And uh, Uge, you know, they, they can score tries from anywhere if they get on the front foot and on a roll. But they're masters of sort of snatching defeat out of the jaws of victory, aren't they? They nearly did it against Argentina. Uh, Cami Lopez had to get them out of jail with a drop goal. And, you know, I got to refer back to that Six Nations game against Wales. So, well, Wales will be mindful of that. They'll be well prepared. And one thing about this Welsh team, Bray, is they're very, very fit, very determined. They won't go away. And whether fans can go the full 80 minutes with Warren's guys, then uh, it remains to be seen. So France will need a good start and need to keep the ball rolling if they do anything against Wales. Hi, Sean. Um, look, I think, uh, do you think Wales be thinking one game a- uh, ahead? So obviously going the, the route that they have gone, they're going to play France. Let's just say there's a good chance they're going to beat France. Do you think they are or would be much more happier playing against yeah, going to play South Africa, let's say, over New Zealand. Yeah, I don't think Maggie Warren um, will be looking any further in this game on Sunday. He's a master of, of man management. He's a master of managing the press. Um, you know, all the talk uh, in amongst the fans here is, you know, before the game was called off, oh, will it be France? Will it be England? And all that sort of chat. But he will... You know, trust me, having worked with Warren, just look one game at a time. He'll keep all the players' feet on the ground. They won't know uh, whether or not they'll be selected early in the week. He'll make cha- uh, training challenging, although not many of those guys put their hand up really against Uruguay other than Lee Halfpenny. So I think he'll just be focused on France to get the job done. And then he's the master of, of game week. Uh, whether that's then South Africa or Japan, well, and they're both going to be tough opponents if we'll get through. I think quietly, you know, as a Kiwi, he will perhaps have a wry smile that he'd be avoiding the All Blacks because I don't think anybody really wants to play the All Blacks unless it's in the final. So, yeah, I, I take your point. But, you know, knowing more as they do and the rest of the coaching staff, it'll all be about France. And then they'll dust themselves down and refocus for the next one. I guess another question I want to ask you is how impressed have you been with... with uh... Adams, Josh Adams, you know, he's he's had a, you know, he's almost a, a villain against Fiji and then all of a sudden goes ahead and scores, you know, two tries and then he scored again, obviously, against Uruguay. Um, what, five tries this tournament? Have you have you been impressed with how he's gone into this tournament considering, you know, the season that he's had so far? Yeah, I, I have been told. He's been one of the finds of the last season and a half for Wales, Maggie. And again, a lot of credit has to go to Warren Gatland because, you know, Warren does back his guys if they are performing and you know of course Lee Halfpenny you've got this British lion who's 
on on the bench or in the in the in the reserves, if you like, he's moved Liam Williams around back to fifteen to accommodate Josh Adams, and the guy just keeps scoring tries. I love his durability. I love the fact that he keeps coming and coming. He's not one of these flash players, but he gets on with it. He gets over the line, and to think he had a dead leg, he was strapped up for the game yesterday, and just came out and tried his hardest, got over the line again. Speaks volumes for him. He's a good lad. And uh, he's a typical Warren Gatland-style player. So uh, we're really chuffed to have George in, in the ranks. Well, if he's anything, it doesn't mean anything at all, frankly. But uh, if, if I had to put money on this and I was a betting man, I would I would put money on Wales getting to the final now. Um, I hope that hasn't cursed it. But, uh, Sean, uh, I'm sure you're having a great time in Japan. I'm sure that um, you, like us, want to extend our your sympathies to the people who have unfortunately lost people, but uh, we continue and it's, you know, from a Welsh point of view, there's every reason to be confident, I'm sure. Thanks very much for speaking to us, mate. Okay, mate. Absolute pleasure. All the best. Take care. Maggie, let's round this off now. You're here with the Tyrells Premier 15s and this is the final year of the RFU's three-year £2.4 million investment in the tournament. Have you heard whether this is going to be um, funded like for like going forward? Does it depend on getting a headline sponsor or what? Do you know? I don't know all the in and out details. Uh, I am a member of the RFU Council, so obviously there's lots of discussions going ahead now talking about the future of the the tournament. But um, to my knowledge, there's significant amount of support for it. It's the last three years have been uh, have been I was going into the third year has been a success. You know, um, we've seen the competition of the players. Um, in, in, improve, you know, they're, they're, the games are significantly tougher, the scores are getting a little bit closer other than a few odd um, scores, but generally on the whole we are seeing an improved talent and, and that's what we wanted to do to get a, a bigger foundation of talent, of pool of players to represent England and, and, and I think um, definitely you know, the sponsors are, are more attracted to what, what the tournament is now. Well my, uh, he just happens to have sat next to me at school uh, from the age of 11, Tim Crow, who's a if not a world sponsorship expert, it's certainly one of the most knowledgeable in this country. And um, he has assured me that the money available for sponsorship in women's sport far outweighs men's sport at the moment. People uh, with big budgets are looking to do that. So I, I shouldn't have thought it's beyond the wit uh, of the RFU's commercial team to get uh, either a renewal or a replacement sponsor. And let's play pay tribute to Tyrells for being the first and doing that and heading. Um, you said that before this season, probably Saris and Quinns would finish first and second respectively or in the uh, other order. They're both top of the table at the moment with 100% starts. Anyone likely to push them? Um, if I'm honest, I, I, at one stage I probably did think Loughborough would have pushed them a bit more and um, Loughborough so far have only won two games um, so it's been a bit of a slow start for them and you know I have to say well done to, to Bristol who who, who I guess an outsider you wouldn't think would have probably beaten Loughborough and have done so and, and well done to them. So I think the teams that will probably push Harlequins and, and Saracens are, you know, Wasps that they're currently sitting third behind have won three games and Gloucester Hartbury as well have been pretty impressive with their three wins. Um, I, I think it's going to be quite an interesting one. Loughborough play Wasps this weekend and I, and I, and you know, that's going to be a, a tough match. Loughborough, again, have got some good players. Um, you know, the Scarrets of the world, you know, play for them. And, and Katie Daly-McLean as well. And Sarah Hunter. So I, I generally think that's going to be a, a telling point to see how Wasp fare against Loughborough and whether Wasp, uh, you know, still have the strength that they had last season. They've lost key players like, uh, you know, Rochelle, um, Rochelle Clarks. And I think she she's a key player. She's going to have gone to Saracens as part of their coaching team. So... I generally think that your Wasps, your Gloucester Hartbury and still Loughborough and Bristol as well could possibly push them. Is it too soon for the forthcoming women's, uh, well, it's not women's World Cup, the World Cup, Yeah, yeah. Um, to expect that the fruits of this particular investment will be uh, fulfilled or will it take another one? Um, I think we've had a good enough cycle that I do think we will see the, the I guess, the efforts of what's, the investment has done pay off in the next World Cup. So the next World Cup is 2021 in New Zealand. Um, I do think we'll, we'll start to see the England squad 
have more talented players coming through. I do the think depth the, should be better, shouldn't yeah, it, at the very least? I think at the moment we've relied quite a lot on some of those senior players, which is great for the last World Cup. But going forward, you know, in, in two years' time, I want to see other players coming through and not just talking about the same you know, same plays that we have been doing the last mm-hmm. few years. So I just hope there's more depth, and because we're going to, you know, you have to compete against New Zealand, who have have thrown more money into their setup. And the French are always a team that you know in the women's game are are exciting to watch. So I do think for England, we hope that the next few years uh, the, the the talent pool comes through. Well, you're when are you going out to Japan? Because you're off so soon, soon, aren't you? I go on Wednesday. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm going to put this to you. Very difficult question. Any thoughts on the winner? Has it has it has the the games thus far changed your mind or not? Do you know what, Brian? I would love to see Japan win the World Cup. That would be my outsider. Uh, I really would love to see that, but it's, I. I mean, I'd be brutally honest I, I just don't think they're going to get there um, at the start of the World Cup I said New Zealand were going to win it I think New, and I said New Zealand South Africa final um, I, I, I'm not changing on that one I still think that's going to be the case um, we haven't really seen South Africa or New Zealand be tested other than their one game and I just think they're going to pick up momentum now um, and, and the way that they play the game is is a little bit different you know South Africa have their physicality one of the things that for me with South Africa they just don't know how to change it up when when the game mm. changes up in front of them so that's that's going to be their their challenge but I, I just think it's I still feel it's going to be a South Africa New Zealand final with a New Zealand winning it well that's all we have time for this week on Brian Moore's full contact with the Telegraph and um, Mitsubishi Motors thank you very much to my co-host Maggie Alfonso and as always to all our guests Enjoy the quarterfinals this week and make sure you tune in next Monday when we will know the makeup of the 2019 Rugby World Cup semi finalists. In the meantime, why not subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss an episode during the World Cup and beyond? And whilst you're there, why don't you write a review? But for now, it's goodbye. Goodbye.